really do appreciate that song. It communicates even in the feeling of it a sense of longing, a sense of anticipation that um, things will not always be so, even as all things have been subjected to Christ yet, as the author of Hebrews says, we do not yet now see all things subjected to him. So Emmanuel will come and he will put all things right. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, I will read verses 8 through 12, and our focus today, however, will be on verses 10 through 12. I want to reiterate before I read that if you're a visitor, please do fill out the connection card that you found in your bulletin that helps us follow up with you. If that's one of the reasons you come here, it's one of the main things that we try to focus on is real pastoral care and connection with the body of Christ. We don't try to put on a show or a service only, as it were. We try to be the real body of Christ and provide care and love and support for real people. And further, if you're a member especially, please do pick up a copy of the church calendar. There are many cancellations and alterations in our schedule going forward through the holiday season, so it's on the little narrow table as you exit the room here. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we now come to a text that uh, stuns the imagination. I pray that I would do a good job of communicating some of the stunning glories of this text and present it there for your people for consumption for joy, for encouragement, for comfort. I pray that as we investigate and as we put to practice the truth in this passage, as we consider the promises that you made through the prophets of old, that you would help us see the Lord Jesus. It is all for naught unless we leave this room seeing him more clearly. And if you would, in these moments, pray for yourself that the Lord would be gracious to show you wonderful things in his word. If you would also pray for me that I would use words that are understandable and make sense. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 8 
Those of you who have come for some time or are members of this church, especially if you've joined recently, you know that I like to talk about expositional preaching and the value of that manner of presenting the Word of God to the people of God. There are, however, many types or postures that one can take in being expositional. You can try to say everything that's there. Uh, Alternatively, you can say maybe the most pastoral things that you can find in a text. You can also try to say things that are necessary to show the unity of a text as we march through a book of the Bible. And then you can try to discuss the text and, and maybe tease out many of its major implications. And it should not surprise you that I'm a greedy preacher and try to do all of those every single week. Um, with a text like this, as I started to think about it, meditate on it, and prepare, even many months ago, really, um, and praying over it recently, I just realized this text is too big. It's simply too big. And it's not... It's, it's not like some of Paul's texts where you can break it up into digestible parts and talk about each of those parts and not lose sight of the overall argument. If you did that, um, I think you would miss the fullness of this passage. Um, if we were to say, in some ways, everything that's there in terms of implication, pastoral encouragement, and all that I, I'm already mentioned, it would take us six to seven weeks, but we would lose the sight of the unity of this passage, and I don't want to do that. Uh, We would lose some of the sight of the beauty of these words. So, because I want you to really be stunned by this text, we're we're splitting it up just into two weeks, and we're really uh, just kind of running through it twice to answer two questions, and that'll be clear here in a second. Um, I want you to be encouraged and edified by what you find here. But as I said in my prayer, I want you to see your Lord Jesus. This is in many ways, and I I don't think this is stretching the meaning of this text very much, but this is Peter's summary of the entire Old Testament. And it is a lens or a tool or or a, a process of analysis, of analysis rather, whereby you can consume the Old Testament too in the proper way. It's significant in so many ways. So, more than just exegete the text, I want to use the text and put it to practice. Um, And as we do this together, I want you to see how helpful it is. So, here's the plan for this week and next. Number one is we will look at the sufferings of Christ as as predicted by the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. And then part two, the subsequent glories. So that's the only hard break that I could find in the text to to extend it out to multiple weeks. So when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So we're taking those two bookends, if you will, of the Christ event and using this week all of our time for the most part explaining the text and then putting it to use to look into the Old Testament and see how the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the next week, how the prophets of the Old Testament predicted the, the subsequent glories. So, that's the plan. And it is such a suitable text for this time of year. I did not plan this as being the text that we would just end up in magically uh, leading into Christmas. But it works so well as the anticipation of His first coming and even as we look back at His first coming, coming in anticipation of His second coming, these verses help us 
understand what even is our hope. What are, in fact, the promises that God has made? So, now we begin with what I will call a basic, uh, help you understand a basic meaning, a basic explanation of the text. We won't explore every question uh, or application. This is a 30,000 foot view, uh, but I want to point out the basic structure of the text and what it is that Peter is actually saying. I'll read it again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the first thing that I think we should say very clearly is that this salvation was foretold to the prophets of the Old Testament. He says, concerning this salvation. And what is he referring to? We could read and summarize Uh, Verses 8 and 9 again, this is a description of what this salvation is. This is why I read it in the beginning. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, so this is what He's already been developed, this very rich presentation of hope in Jesus Christ. Salvation of your souls. It's it's not just future hope for salvation in the last day. That's basic and understandable. Anyone who uh, trusted in God in the Old Testament time would have believed that God would rescue them in some sense on the final day of judgment. Peter here, however, is saying that this salvation is what was revealed to the prophets of old. Meaning, faith in the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him. The subsequent glories of the Messianic age. The full picture, a full robust idea of what Jesus is coming to do. That that itself was being revealed to the prophets. Salvation in Christ. Even the new birth. We could could go all the way back to verse 3 in chapter 1 and see the full-orbed picture of this salvation that that Peter is claiming was revealed to the Old Testament prophets. I want you to understand, this is sweeping and majestic. Um, he's, He's already, I think, stunning us a bit with this picture. The New Testament is not new in the sense that it is all new material. Rather, every little thing about the New Covenant, including the parts of the Old Testament that were to be left behind as the Old Written Code, are built into the Old Covenant. The blueprints, if you will, are there, lining out the outline of not just the state of salvation or that God will save, but none less than the person of Jesus Christ Himself was there in the prophecies that they received. So that's number one. Which prophets? Who, who, which of the prophets got to see this? 
this salvation? Who, who of the prophets searched and inquired so carefully? He leaves it ambiguous, but clarifies later, I think we could take this to mean all of them. It's any within whom the Spirit of Christ is testifying. That's the key. That's the link. They received what was being indicated, and in that reception of the truth being revealed to them, it spiked their curiosity and interest, and their longing to see and understand what it is or what it was going to be when the person of Christ was to come. I want you to see again how ambitious Peter is being here. I know a lot of stunning statements about the Old Testament in the New Testament, but I'm not so sure there are any so stunning or ambitious as this. Whatever he's about to say about the prophets, he's saying this is true of all of them. From the least of them to the greatest. All the prophets, whoever had the Spirit of Christ testifying in them, knew these things and had these things revealed to them. That is ambitious, to say it mildly. I want you to also notice, somewhat as an aside, the centrality of grace. Look at what he says in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. He he uses the word grace as a substitute for the word salvation. And that's a reminder, I think, we should remember that uh, it's it's of grace from beginning to end. And... In the Bible, grace means unmerited, an unmerited gift of God's favor. So even the prophets, even under the law, even under their, their status as the chosen people of God, they understood that any salvation, anything that's going to come is all of grace from start to finish. So, and then he says, yours, this grace that was to be yours He could have just left it ambiguous and said something like, the grace that was to come, the grace that that would be brought, or something like that. But he he clarifies, he he pushes the envelope even further and said, the grace that is to be yours. So in some sense, not theirs. This means that they were self-aware this, just understand just how, how mind-boggling this is. Peter is saying that the prophets of old were self-aware that the prophecies that they uttered, while being in part for the people of that time, were mainly about the grace that was to be yours and mine. That's amazing. And I, I mean, there's so many things we could say about that, but this is just the basic meaning. I'm trying to move through this to help you see, and we're just getting started with how stunning this is. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So number two, this salvation was revealed to them. They received it. Notice what they did when these truths were revealed to them. It is, this is so fascinating and, ra- fascinating and raising all kinds of questions. First, of course, is this. What Peter, the first question rather that I would ask is this What is Peter seeing in the Old Testament that enables him to say this? That the prophets themselves searched in it. So, so this is different than the prophecies they received. He's saying, in view of the prophecies they received, they started searching and inquiring kind of on their own time to figure out what it all meant. 
and when the Christ was to come and what the truth of the sufferings of Christ was and what the subsequent glories was. So what is he seeing in the Old Testament that tells him they did this? That's, that's the big question for me, and we'll hopefully see some of this as we go through some of the prophecies, but, but it's just amazing that he knows his Old Testament good enough to be able to claim that. This isn't just, we can talk about theories of inspiration, but we don't have time. This isn't just the, the Holy Spirit telling him, oh, by the way, the prophets also did this. He knows his Old Testament well enough to say they knew. And, and, they, and their curiosity was spiked, and they wanted to find out more, even as these things were being revealed to them. This is where I get this word longing as the, the title for this text. Peter is indicating that there was a divinely sanctioned, even caused, curiosity and longing. Might we even say discontentment that the prophets of old had with the things as they were. And they knew that there was, a, there was a future age, a future coming of the Messiah, and they tried to figure it out. There's contrast that they felt. There was glory, greater glory to, you know, he says the subsequent glories. There's greater glory in what's coming after. There's also a contrast of grace that, that uh, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. They understood that even though everything that we experience is of God's grace, there is a greater unfolding and outpouring of God's grace yet to come. And they tried to figure out when and how it would come. And all of this, the, the contrast of now versus final, that we're, things are incomplete now, and one day they won't be incomplete, that caused them to have longing. And a, just a perfect example of how this manifested itself in a... In a Israelite at the time of Jesus' advent is Simeon in the temple. He knows that there has to be something better coming. He calls it God's salvation. And he knows, he has some sense given to him by God that God will not let him die, take him home, if you will, until he's able to see God's salvation. So that longing that you see in Simeon in the temple is what Peter is saying all the Old Testament prophets had. And they tried to see it. They tried to understand And maybe some of them saw glimpses of it as they interpreted and understood the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They want to see it. Peter's saying it's the case with anyone who was prophesying by the Spirit of Christ. So, he says the Spirit of Christ. Let's talk about that a little bit. This is very important to note. The Holy Spirit goes by many names in the Bible, and this is a very important one. There is one Holy Spirit... Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. But notice how he inverts the timeline. This this underscores the unity of the people of God. Look at it. That these Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ was working in them. And then he gets to where he talks about the apostles and he says it was the Holy Spirit. So if we were expecting to state it in order, we would reverse those. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit who worked through the Old Testament prophets, and now in the New Testament, it's the Spirit of Christ. But he inverts it intentionally, showing, I think, very clearly, deep continuity and unity between the people of God. And what unites us to all the saints that have gone before and all the saints who will come after us is that is the Spirit of Christ who guides us along as we go through this wilderness, if you will, until we reach home. So keep that idea in your mind and wait for a little more payoff in here in a little bit. So, this salvation was revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ through the lens of the whole Christ event. 
says, when he, singular masculine pronoun referring to the Spirit of Christ, right? Don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He, he revealed to them, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think this is what we could call an A to Z or Alpha to Omega statement. It's not just... The, the time of Christ on, on the cross, his sufferings, and then the subsequent glories, maybe his resurrection. He's saying from beginning to end, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, that, that all of it, in some sense, were being communicated to the prophets of old. It's a way to saying the whole thing, all that is important for us to know about Christ and what he came to do, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was predicting them in the hearts of the prophets. We will see ways that we can see this too. I mean, I hope you feel at least now like that. This is ambitious and this is stunning for Peter to say that. We'll see a few ways that I think we can see the same thing too. But this, this is a new thing, a new line of reasoning. How, and you'll see the questions here in a little bit as I, as I mention them. But can, can we approach understanding and embrace of our Old Testament in such a way that we would be confident enough to say the same thing? That the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories are all embedded in it. So it was the Spirit of Christ. And as such, it was His Spirit working in the Old Testament prophets through the shadows of everything else they were speaking about. Israel, exile, Judah, Jerusalem. And I think we should take this to mean... That even in the time, in that time of prophecy and promise, because the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus, that he was doing that exact same thing back then as he worked in them as the spirit of prophecy. If we could stretch the terminology just a little bit, the first person to preach the gospel was the Spirit of Christ. And the first person to hear the gospel who at least understood it, were the prophets. That's amazing. Even thousands of years before he was incarnated. Also, it was revealed to them with confidence in the superiority and primacy of the new covenant. It says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. This, if you will permit me to use the term, is a bombshell statement. As, as Peter's original hearers were listening to this read, just, just imagine the scene as this letter is being passed around through the churches in Asia Minor. You've got churches gathering, you know, amorphous groups of Christians because they've been exiled perhaps there, so they don't have an official structure maybe yet, and they're, they're gathering and they've received this letter in a room probably smaller than this with a lot more people. They sat rather more efficiently than we do, but they're all there crowded around listening to the reading of the letter. And this moment when he says that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. This is when the discerning in the audience would have raised their eyebrows and looked around at each other and had a discussion afterwards about what he meant. And maybe there were Meetings to follow to try and unpack what, what in the world did Peter just say? It's reading between the lines, but I, I don't know another way that this could have been received by his original hearers. The implications of this are far-reaching. 
Not only, understand this, not only were they being shown the truth of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, but they knew, they knew, they took it as objective fact that they were not serving themselves. And I think we should read there the Old Testament people of God. They were not serving themselves primarily, but you. It's amazing. Peter is saying that the Old Testament prophets not only saw the outline of the person of Christ and his work, but rather, in addition to that, they also saw the outline of the people of God. This, this final group, the bride of Christ, if you will, that they understood they're not serving themselves. It's not just going to continue like it is. They're going to serve you. They are serving you, he says. This is why it becomes very important for us to identify who the intended audience of 1 Peter is. If it's all Jews, then this is not very groundbreaking. If it is, I think beyond dispute that it is to a mixed congregation, this is stunning that the Old Testament prophets knew they were serving a mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile. Amazing. It's one thing to say that they said things that are for a mixed congregation of Jew and Gentile. It's another thing to say they knew they were serving a mixed congregation. Now, it would take so long for us to drill down and explore all the ins and outs of this and the far-reaching implications, but I'll give you just one. Does this not help you better approach your Old Testament We will make seven attempts today, hopefully, if we have time, to do what Peter did. So we're going to take this lens, this framework, and try to appropriate for ourselves what it is Peter is showing, use it as a guide, and see the things he saw. But as I already said, might you know your Bible so well that you would be able to say the same thing, not as a mere assertion of fact, but seeing it, they knew. An example, I guess, would be, as we spent some time in a few years ago, Melchizedek, that the author of Hebrews knows his Old Testament so well that he sees two verses in the Old Testament and writes multiple chapters about the implications that that has for our Lord Jesus. Or the ox from 1 Corinthians. Here's what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's for you. Stunning. So, it's not, all that, it's not all that innovative to say that the prophets saw the outline of the person of Jesus, the Messiah, in their prophecies. That's one thing. That's not the main point here. I want you to understand this. The point is, alongside the outline of Christ, the person of Christ, they saw the people of Christ, too. And they knew that they were serving that people, not their people, as it were. Understand, brothers and sisters, Christmas is indeed about the coming of your Messiah. It is is a celebration of His first advent, but it is also about the beginning of the revealing of the sons of God. Christmas is in some measure about you being the people of Christ. What the angels long to see isn't God which is an amazing thing to say, but the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The things that they long to see, the things that the prophets longed to see, is is in many ways Christ with His people together. Number three, the revealing work of the Spirit of Christ, number one, was incomplete 
when given to the prophets of old. It's indicated by when he says, they searched and inquired. The thing that they did not know was the person or time. They didn't know who exactly it was going to be, and they didn't know when it was going to happen, but they knew it was coming. Notice that he does not say there was a missing essential building block of these truths. In fact, he says that it is the same things. Look, look closely. This is verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So that he's equating the same things. It's the same raw material, the same building materials of what the prophets declared and what the apostles are preaching in real time now. And he's saying they did that, but it was incomplete because they didn't know when or who. So what the apostles do, it is, it is completed by the apostles. Understand this, that the revealing work of the Spirit of Christ was incomplete when given to the prophets of old, and now it is being completed by the ministry of the apostles because they can now say, and here he is. This is who it is. This is the one that all of the prophets spoke about. And in fact, Peter, in his sermons in, recorded in the book of Acts, is one of the ones who does that the very best. We'll see a few of those in a minute, Lord willing. They filled in the blanks. See, this, this is the unique ministry of the apostles. They filled in all the blanks, divinely authorized for, by Christ to do this for us, saying, here's the one who was promised. Here's how he fulfills that promise. And to tell us exactly what that means for our lives from here on out. And further, it is dependent on the same Holy Spirit. This, this almost goes without saying. I already mentioned this before, but... It is the Spirit of Christ working in the prophets of old, and it's the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit working in both. Deep unity between the people of God. Number four, (laughs) even angels long to look into these things. As if Peter had not already given us enough to be stunned by and our, our imagination boggled by in this text already. He throws this in there with, with no lead up to it, just to take it even further, saying it was not just the prophets who longed to understand these things, the person or time of Christ and his people, but it is the angels too who long to see these things. There's just so much to say here, and we can't even mention them in passing. Here's just one. The angels. Consider Gabriel himself, who says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you the good news. I mean, this is an amazing being. And Gabriel... Yes, even the cherubim and seraphim themselves long to see what is happening in you and me. What spikes their curiosity? What do they long to see? They they have to cover their faces with their wings as they encircle the throne. They cannot look at God's face. So instead of longing for something that could never happen, they want to see God in you and me. They want to see the glory of what God has done. They want to see Him manifest His wisdom, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. This is what he says. So that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God's plan to reveal His glory to the angels that have been encircling His throne for unknown ages is through you. And they long to see it. What kind of show, what kind of display of God's wisdom are you putting on for the angels right now in your life, brothers and sisters? Let your light shine so that other people may see your good deeds. And we could say with equal biblical weight, let your light shine so that the angels may see and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One more about the angels. I really can't help myself on this point. Uh, They're not left outside. There are people who interpret this text to give the indication like, well, what we have is just infinitely superior and better than what the angels has, and that it's qualitatively different, to be sure. But it seems that they were created to see what they see in us. That in the same way you and I were made in the image of God, and they aren't, we're, we're made to find our union with Christ and to receive it internally. It seems that they were made to serve on our behalf and see it unfold in us. So that the fullness of their joy is not feeling like, well, I guess we, I wish we would have fallen and received redemption like they do. Rather, they were created, as the author of Hebrews says, as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, that their purpose, their joy, their fullness of all of why God created them in the first place is realized in all of this stuff coming about in you and me. So they're not left outside. It's not a second-tier community in heaven. Their joy is full Seeing God's glory in us. That's unfathomable. Their joy is being the attendants of those being brought in as the people of God, and they long to see it come to pass. So, in the time we have left, I want to mention that's just a basic understanding of the text. I mean, so many lines of inquiry we haven't even talked about, unexplored, big questions relationship between the covenants and how do we use the Bible and all this kind of stuff, all of those just not even mentioned. But we're going to try to put this text to use in the time we have left. We can mention a few places where we can, I think, begin to see what Peter saw as he studied his Old Testament. So here are the questions. I won't, re- I won't mention them at each point as we go to these different visions of Christ, if you will. But Here are the questions that I think you can approach the Old Testament prophecies with on the basis of this text. Number one, how did this prophecy predict the sufferings of Christ? Number two, what did this prophecy teach the prophet about the coming of the Messiah? Number three, what did this prophecy teach the prophet about the people of the Messiah? Number four, How did this prophecy create longing in the prophet? And again, this week our focus will be primarily on that statement, the sufferings of Christ. Next week, the subsequent glories. So I have seven today, Lord willing, seven next week of of different visions of the sufferings of Christ in the Old Testament and then visions of the subsequent glories in the Old Testament next week. Number one, the seed. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
the sufferings of Christ as prophecies, even all the way back to the curse, are, are, are seen. Hopefully you're familiar with this text. It's not innovative to state that this is speaking about Christ, though no New Testament author makes that explicit connection. I think Moses himself, as the prophet, develops this theme of the seed throughout. We'll see that in a little bit. But, it, but understand, this, this is a promise given in the form of a curse, in response to sin, to the serpent, that one day one would come and crush his head while his heel is bruised, so that it would be a victory, but at a cost of great damage and pain. The question is, we, we can see that now. We can look back and see in Genesis that, wow, this is, this is clearly pointing to the seed of the woman, which is interesting because women don't have seed, and God's curse to the serpent is to say, an offspring, a seed of you, the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. The question is, did Moses get it? Peter says yes, and that he understood that through prophecies like this and the theme of the seed developed through Genesis, that Moses not only saw the sufferings of Christ predicted, but also the subsequent glories, and that he was serving the people of that Christ. And I think it's fair to say, even though this is from the New Testament, that Jesus clearly taught that Moses saw these things. He says this to the Pharisees, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, claims that this is about me. Not not just the prophecy of the seed, but in any place where you see the promises of God foretelling something, giving indication of a future time or a future person who would come to fulfill the purposes of God, Jesus says, Moses is writing about me. And there are many places we might see this in Moses' life, like the the encounter on Sinai where he requests to see God's glory, that he knows that what is going on, even with the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments and everything else and the initiation of the covenant, that this isn't complete. He knows that there's something more, and so he asks God, show me your glory. He knows that there is, there is a sense of something greater that God could even show and give to people who are alive right now. And in some places, he demands it. He says, don't, if, if you won't go with us, if you won't be with us, then don't even bring us up out of this place. Just let us die in the wilderness. We could see this also in the serpent motif in the wilderness when the people are bitten by the snakes and Moses is told to build a bronze serpent that everyone who looks on the serpent would be healed of the snake poison. But there's another motif that develops from the same word. It's translated seed in Genesis 3, but in other places the same root word is translated offspring. Offspring, And we see this especially in the promises to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, same root word, seed, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then in Genesis 22, verse 18, he he reiterates the promise, same root word, and in your offspring, seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Paul connects the dots for us, actually, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And he points it all squarely at Jesus. Now the promises were made to Abraham. 
and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. So Paul says this is exactly what Moses was doing in keeping it the singular in terms of number for that word, saying that the seed in Genesis that Moses develops and writes the rest of the promises to Abraham, that singular masculine pronoun used of the seed in Genesis 3, he is further developed through the promises of Abraham. And, and Paul says, without, without, with almost no defense whatsoever, this is Christ. How does this point to the sufferings of Christ? How does this idea of the seed who is to receive the promises of Abraham point to his sufferings? Well, I think we can see this in Abraham's sojourning. I think Abraham's sojourning is a type of the rejection that Christ experienced, even from his own people, that the one who received the promise, Abraham himself, had to live as a sojourner in the land of promise his entire life. And so when Jesus comes, who is the seed of Abraham, he's rejected by his own people in the land of promise. The author of Hebrews certainly interprets this way with respect to Moses, that Moses understood this idea of sojourning and rejection from his own people and living as a wanderer as a type of Christ. Because he says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. So in some way, Moses understood that the way towards what God is doing is somehow through this experience of exile or sojourning. And the seed of Abraham isn't going to just walk into his inheritance and have it all without any questions and without any opposition. When the seed comes, he's going to have a similar experience to Abraham and to Moses. This is how... John says it in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That the way of Christ, what, what was being prophesied in all of these experiences and these images in the Old Testament, is that when the one comes, it'll be through rejection. People who were paying close enough attention to their Old Testament should have known that when he comes, it will not be in terms of a parade and a welcome party, at least in his first coming. Number three, the lamb. This one is representative of many different themes in the Old Testament. You can think of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the ram caught by the horns in the situation of Mount Moriah, and the scapegoat, and many, many others. And it's in fact John the Baptist who synthesizes all of these images with his stunning and remarkable Proclamation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, in the offering of Isaac, the establishment of the sacrificial system, the carrying out of the sacrificial system, and in so many other ways, there was this sense of this need of greater forgiveness. God will provide. There's still a sense in that even though He has provided us a way to deal with atonement and deal with the guilt of sin, there is yet inadequacy in that system. David understood this. Sacrifices you have not desired. The blood of bulls and goats can't deal with sin. 
And Moses, think of Moses, like he wanted to enter the promised land. And so after God gives all this commandments about atonement and how many bulls and goats and lambs you got to slaughter for certain types of sin, he could have just gone back in and said, well, I've sinned against God in in striking the rock and not speaking to the rock. I can just sacrifice all these bulls and goats. But no, instead he goes directly to God to ask for forgiveness, knowing that his sin is such that just blood of bulls and goats isn't going to do anything. There's this sense that there needs to be something more to deal with sin. And this idea, this picture of a lamb is developed over and over through the Old Testament. At this point, we can bring in Isaiah, (laughs) who says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Isaiah himself is picking up all of these themes and applying it to this coming one who is going to actually deal with sins. And Peter, this this is the amazing thing, don't bury the lead. Peter is saying they knew. They weren't just guessing and receiving oracles from God and be like, wow, that's really interesting. I have no idea what that means. He's saying they knew that this mapped to the sufferings of a coming one and subsequent glories and a subsequent people of God. And the connection, of course, to the sufferings of Christ is that it was all preview. All of those hundreds, thousands, perhaps even millions of goats and sheep and bulls that were slaughtered, blood flowing out of the temple on a daily basis, that's preview for the sufferings of Christ. So that when He came and suffered in our place for our sins, the people who were paying attention could say, now it makes sense. This is so clear. It reveals this future age, namely the age of the Messiah that that Paul can say, without any need to clarify, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I think we should read there to say, His death on the cross is the fulfillment of all of that imagery, of all of that pageantry, of all of that festival. All of it collapses and finds its fulfillment in Christ and His sufferings. Number four, the prophet This is one of my favorites because it's neglected. We don't talk about this a whole lot, but it comes up when you try to understand what the rulers asked John the Baptist when they asked him, are you the prophet? They didn't ask, are you a prophet? They asked, are you the prophet? And this is what he's referring to from Deuteronomy 18, verse 16. This is, again, Moses. Like This has been one of the undercurrent questions as we've analyzed these different visions. Did Moses actually understand? Here's one of the points where I can say he did, in fact, understand. Deuteronomy 18, verse 16. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's amazing. This is after God has given the law, the law that is perfect, the law that is without fault to accomplish what it is supposed to accomplish. And Moses says near the end of his life, he's just looking at the situation and he says, yeah, God's going to have to raise up another prophet who's like me in some sense, and then you don't, you don't keep listening to me necessarily, you listen to him. Amazing. And to no one's surprise, Peter himself is the New Testament author that connects the dots to Jesus with that prophecy. Acts 3, beginning in verse 19. You can actually go there. This is one where I really want you to see the way Peter himself is seeing these Old Testament prophets speak of the outline of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the future glories. Acts chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. And he he could have just stopped there. But he makes the connection for us here. Look at verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the, that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. All the prophets. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, see that one in a bit too, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's connecting so many dots for us in that sermon. And in many ways, 1 Peter 1 is just a further theological development of exactly what he's doing. He's saying all the prophets predicted these days. This prophet has come. So what the, the question is, how does this tell us about the sufferings of Christ? This may be, may be more fitting to the subsequent glories. But I think we can read in here... Uh, some of the sufferings of Christ at least, what was Moses' reception among the people of Israel? Was it altogether positive? Was there not some grumbling and complaining and rejection and rebellion and turning to sin when he goes and stays up too long on the mountain? What was the reception of the prophet that Moses predicted when he came? What is it altogether positive? Was there not rejection? Was there not rebellion? Was there not questioning whether or not he was in fact speaking for God? When Moses says, a prophet like me, I think we should read in there with a similar reception that the, the narrative arc of the life of this prophet will in many ways be like mine. So understand, this: Moses' life and Jesus' life overlay in many interesting ways. Leaves former pleasures, a nicer situation, chooses identity with his people in a terrible situation, works on behalf of God to redeem and lead his people out of the horrible situation, and tells them how they ought to live in the meantime. Jesus does in many ways the same thing. So when Moses says, a prophet like me, he's not just saying who's going to come and give you a new law. He's saying one who behaves like me and and that I and my life and what God is doing in my life is being foretold. Real quickly, we'll run through the rest here. I know we've gone gone long. Seven is, is a poor representation of how many places we can go and see this happening in the Old Testament. But we would be amiss if we um, did not mention the servant. 
And there are too many passages to choose from. If you want to look up these later, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, that's the one we'll actually read. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 7. And Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12. Here's the one from chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is a well-beloved passage. All of the servant psalms are. But we should ask the question, how can Peter read something like this? And number one, not only conclude rightly that this is talking about Jesus, but number two, say that Isaiah, the prophet, knew that it was about the coming of the future Messiah and a people that was in some sense not them. I don't really have a full answer with some of these, but this is, a, this is part of your task now as you know that this is a, is a way to view your Old Testament where you can engage in the same fact-finding, same truth-uncovering mission to see how Peter saw this. But here's one way I think that we can know that Isaiah knew it was about something more to come. At the end of chapter 61, he says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its produce... And as the garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Frankly, that hasn't happened yet. Not in the full sense. So Isaiah, as he's receiving these prophecies, if they mean anything, then an honest interpreter says, yeah, there's got to be something more. We're waiting for a future age, and it's not going to happen with a simple return from exile. I mean, the very earth producing praise and righteousness. I mean, these, these images are of the eschaton, and they are coming. And the prophets knew. Two more, the comforter from Isaiah as well. So many. We're also in Isaiah for our church Bible reading plan that was unintentional on my part, but it's so meaningful. From chapter 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. This is one that Jesus applies directly to himself regarding this idea of comfort. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And he hands the scroll back 
right at the moment when the very next words, as Luke records, are this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. A possible translation of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 is, For as the sufferings of Christ abound for us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. In the Old Testament, as far as the ESV is concerned, there are eight places where the word comforter, the noun form, occurs. And in every one of them, it's used in a negative sense. Either lamenting the fact that there are no comforters, Or like in Job when he says, miserable comforters are you. Here's one example from Lamentations. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And we know that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the comforter. It's a possible translation of the word that's rendered helper. And Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. How does this show the sufferings of Christ? That, that Jesus, this, this picture, this, this big gap, that, that there, there are no comforters. That, that greater comfort, final, final comfort to help us in our suffering is somehow not available to the Old Testament people of God. So how does this, this lack, this gap that needs to be filled by this coming one who will comfort the people of God show us the sufferings of Christ? And I think I can just tell you, if you have spent any time comforting people who suffer, you know that it causes suffering in you too. And so when Jesus arrived and began to comfort those who mourn, he had to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How else could he be our empathetic high priest? Except that if he suffered too in providing comfort. He's not just a physician that kind of floats above it all and doesn't enter the fray and just administers care and the solution. He enters into our mess, takes on our pain, and provides in that context comfort. Again, the amazing thing, and where more study is needed, is that Peter, Peter is saying that Isaiah knew And the other prophets that speak of the need for a comforter knew that this would not come from the situation as things were. They knew that they were not serving themselves, but you. And they knew that they were helping lay the foundation. Last one. I'll only give you one passage from the Old Testament here. This is the idea of the healer. I deeply identify with this. In so many ways we can't discuss now. This is from Isaiah 53. Again, so much of Isaiah in all of these pictures of the coming one. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This is kept for last because in many ways it is the transition, the idea that helps us go from the sufferings of Christ to the future glories. It's not just about Jesus enduring all of this punishment as a prophetic utterance for a time coming in the future. It's only important insofar as it ushers in the age of the subsequent glories. And what he has to do in order to do that is to heal you. In the most fundamental sense, in all the ways that you absolutely need today and yesterday and tomorrow and all of your life, Jesus is the healer. And I gave you this one from Isaiah 53, though there are other passages that we could go to to talk about this idea of a healer, because it is Peter himself, the only New Testament author, who takes this most treasured passage from Isaiah 53 and explicitly applies it to Jesus from just the next chapter. 1 Peter 2, verses 23 and 25. When, was he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who justifies, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I hope that as you think about these things and as you consider what Peter is telling us about your Bible, that you have been able to see your Messiah. And I've said this before in similar context, if the line of the person of Christ has been formed in your mind through the scriptures. It is not your mental imagination of him that you are seeing. You are seeing the real resurrected Christ. This is exactly how it is supposed to work in being the cause of your faith and your confidence and your assurance. So trust in Him today. Insofar as you have seen Him and His glories and His willingness to go through all of this suffering and rejection and to comfort you and to heal you, entrust your life to Him. Even if you have trusted Him all the time in your life, as far as you can remember up to this point, trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your word, that it reveals your son to us. Thank you that we are given passages like this that show us that there is just so much that we may have missed and so much that we still need to study. Help us be a student of your word like Peter was, that we would be able to see these wondrous things in your law. Encourage us during this season as we have Uh, So many reasons and reminders to celebrate the coming of our Messiah. Help us keep that in the right biblical framework of his coming to suffer and heal us with his wounds. In Jesus' name, amen.